Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast unerringly inaccurate. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So this is the second of three podcasts we're going to put out over August, looking back at past episodes. So this one is actually the most recent of the three episodes that we recorded. We recorded this earlier this year, and it's our episode on Huawei, the Chinese telecoms 5G giant. And it was recorded before the pandemic, and it was also recorded at a time when the government had made a decision to uh, introduce Huawei into Britain's 5G system. And since we recorded this episode, actually the government's made a U-turn and decided to ban Huawei from the 5G infrastructure network. What we're going to do is we're going to, in a second, have a pause, then you'll hear the clip from earlier this year. After that, we'll have our very catchy theme tune, and then we'll go into a discussion. So there's, there's a few wider political questions, aren't there? Yeah. I suppose one of them is this idea of research and development and uh, nationalising stuff like broadband 5G. There's an American report, actually, that an internal US government report that suggested that the US should nationalise 5G broadband and provide a company that does all of it in America. Now, um, you will be surprised, as I was, Steve, to hear that the Trump administration wasn't really down with nationalising stuff and 5G in particular. Shocked. But the reason why Huawei is the position it is, the reason it is this market leader, is because, well, one of the reasons anyway, it spends £20 billion on research and development every year. That's one of the biggest research and development budgets in the world. And obviously a lot of that is because it gets support for the Chinese government. It's also not a publicly listed company, which means they they are not accountable to shareholders and so can plough more money in this business without looking for short-term profits. This is a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Because almost because there's been this lack of R&D spending in Britain for years, there isn't much alternative but to go to private firms. If it wasn't Huawei, it would have to be another firm, wouldn't it? It would have to be, say, Siemens, I think, or or Samsung. Name a a well-known kind of electronics brand and you'll probably find out they're involved in this and have some capability in kind of building this sort of stuff. You're absolutely right that the failure to kind of invest in like R&D, kind of the development of these new technologies, is something that's been lacking in the UK for for quite a while. And this isn't just a a lack of conservative investment, uh, it's a lack of investment under and the labour as well in a lot of ways or at least maybe lacking in the, the potentially the right sort of in, in investment so in the United States um, there's a there's a programme called DARPA um, which uh, is essentially it's for funding uh, blue sky thinking technological projects it's run by the Department of Defence but not everything in it is kind of like you know has defence applications um, the internet um, was funded by DARPA at least initially um, as a as a concept one of the things that um, we've never had really in the UK is is that kind of program. We've never really necessarily had anybody that's kind of focused on that kind of blue sky thinking. We we did have some advisors that were looking at that a little bit, like Steve Hilton, if you remember him, uh, David Cameron's. Uh, oh, what the guys now on Fox News? Yeah, yeah, he his his thing for a bit was trying to kind of like. Uh, bring in blue sky thinking to policy and, oh, and as was like John that. Burt I suppose for Tony Blair yeah but it, it never really seemed to kind of get to take off in the in the same kind of way as it, as it has with, in the US with, with, with DARPA it's not to say 
broadly speaking in the US it's a massive thing but they've got a very significant and successful example and that example is something that Dominic Cummings at the moment seems to be looking to emulate there's been reports uh, going around that he's looking to uh, convince the government um, to basically set up a British version of DARPA in some form um, so that they can invest in this kind of technological uh, research area so that um, you know when it comes down to it next time we need to move to, to 6G or, or whatever else we've actually got some capability and understanding of it in, in, in internally in the UK and rather than having to kind of like go out to uh, to private firms of, of you know governments who may or may not have our best interests at heart uh, a lot of the time I suppose maybe these there was in the 60s just thinking of other departments it was to kind of coordinate maybe research development economic planning for the future Harold Wilson set up the Department for Economic Affairs yeah. under George Brown in the 60s and the idea of that department was to try and utilise this white heat of technology as Wilson yeah. saw it but it didn't really get off the ground I, I suppose it became a bit of a, a stop to George Brown for not beating Wilson in the leadership yeah. and then George Brown was never the most sober of ministers G- given the limitations here and given the dominance of Huawei in the market I think it's quite difficult to see how the British government could have come to a different decision given that Huawei is also already part of our 4G network. Yeah. My understanding is that we were going to have to tear up the 4G network that Huawei was in if we weren't going to let Huawei be part of the 5G network as well. So it's one of those things where because it is a 10, 20 year problem, there's no good, you can't just really say no. If you were, you'd have to completely chuck away everything. Yeah, quite likely yeah which is which is one of the uh, the interesting things about kind of like the US's stance on this is obviously the US does not want as quite famously at this point made it quite clear they did not want Huawei uh, kind of like providing any infrastructure for the UK primarily out of concerns for these backdoors and like data information leakages all of that sort of stuff but nobody's really raised a fuss around 4G and nobody's even kind of mentioned that even if we as you say even if we didn't go with Huawei for 5G that they've probably already got some access somewhere anyway. And what are we doing about, about that if it is a threat? So, I mean, I suppose the reason why it's an issue now is that there, now we are in a sort of trade cold war, aren't we? Yes. Between China and the US. So Meng Wanzhou, who is Huawei's chief financial officer and daughter of the founder of Huawei, is in court, was in court last week um, on sanctions busting charges. Because in Canada, I think, because of a US warrant that went out. So there's a, a big Tip geopolitical thing yeah. going on at the moment. And it's something we've talked about already on podcasts this year, haven't we? That if we're looking at big global blocks and big global trade blocks, you've got the Chinese block on one side, you've got the American block on the other. Britain was in the European block, is now leaving that block. Oh, we wanted to be part of the American block. Well, the uh, the there's some scathing quotes as you say from American senators. I think Tom Cotton said something like, "We the UK might be about to gain its sovereignty from the EU and cede it to Beijing." I mean, it's one of those things I think that shows the idea of national sovereignty is a bit of a myth for yeah. a country of our size, and always was. Like the and in the in the referendum in the seventies, they talked about pool sovereignty and the fact that actually we were dependent on other countries and the whim of what other countries would do. In the seventies, that was very clear because of the oil price shock. There was a very tangible example of the impacts that a national government could have on the domestic economy. Yeah. 
and we've just sort of passed it by almost. Yeah, absolutely. If we come back to what you were saying about Cummings and DARPA, because that's interesting. What it seems like is Cummings, particularly Johnson, are more interested in infrastructure than they are trade deals. So Johnson always seems to want to build bridges to wherever he runs at any particular moment. Looks like HS2 is going to be given the green light, uh, which we weren't sure about when we last recorded a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, in fact, I wrote a piece which which is on the Patreon, kind of like looking at why it would be a bit politically foolish um, for them not to kind of like give the green light to to HS2. So I can't say I'm surprised it's getting the green light. It makes sense for for Mm. both, I think, from an economic and a political perspective for them. If we think about the political issue for Boris Johnson, the issue for Boris Johnson is... With HS2, there's a lot of Tory constituencies, the Tory MPs, who are not going to be happy with this. Same with Huawei. So you've got people like Ian Duncan Smith, David Davis, who are not happy at the fact that Huawei's been given this role, who I would say are probably more Atlanticist in outlook, but also are ones that will be looking for a US trade deal to provide those benefits that leaving the EU is meant to be having. Yes, indeed. We say with quote marks. (laughs) But it's also kind of important to note, you do have almost like um, some more, I suppose, I don't know if traditionalist is quite the right term, but a certain type of Tory who are kind of opposed to this just because they do, they're not necessarily, there's a group of them who aren't Atlantists, but are just generally concerned because of their interest in defence and things like that. So Tom Tugendhat, yeah, Johnny Mercer, former squaddy, if my memory serves me correctly, Tugendhat, I believe, is the chair of the defence select committee? Uh, Chair of Foreign Affairs. Foreign Affairs. He just won re-election. Just won re-election, that was it. But yeah, he's got a very kind of like strong interest in these sorts of areas and, 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 and he is very much kind of like opposed to uh to to kind of like Huawei's involvement, but not necessarily for the, the the exact same reasons as somebody like IDS and and David Davis. Um, so it's important to note that there are those two different factions, and it's entirely possible that some could be won over in a different way to to some of the others. Like I could imagine, like Tugendhat could probably be be won over more easily in a lot of ways because you can basically say, no, here's all of the things we're doing to prevent, you know, mitigate the risk of, you know, data spying and all of that sort of stuff. Whilst IDS and David Davis as Atlanticists are much more likely to go, but 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 we're, we're annoying America. We need to keep America on side mm. and therefore vote against it if they came to it as a kind of like a political statement. I think the other thing in terms of the... I mean, there are very legitimate concerns. Absolutely. Very, very legitimate. But uh, the government essentially is painted into a bit of a corner. Yeah. But it also seems like they've gone with Huawei partly because it's the cheapest option. So they've gone for cheap and reliable. The government has kind of like run out of manoeuvrability on this. So it does not surprise me they've gone with Huawei, even with a kind of a limited involvement, primarily because there, there wasn't really an alternative. At least not that that was cost-effective. I think what it also shows, just again touching on the foreign policy aspect, is just as with policy on Iran following more the EU line than the American line, this is also an area in which Britain's following the EU line on this. So in Germany at the moment, there's a similar debate going on. So the Greens are opposed to Huawei being part of the 5G network. The Social Democrats, with a minority partner in the governing coalition, are also opposed to Huawei. Angela Merkel is personally in favour as the CDU majority mm-hmm. party in that coalition. Question is whether she's got enough political capital to try and force something through. Mm-hmm. But the EU itself, I think, 
came to a collective decision about Huawei. And they, again, a bit like Britain, came to this idea of limited involvement. Yeah. So again, you've got this weird position where Britain sees it trying to be a bit more of a bridge between America and Europe, but heading more the European line. And again, there's a kind of like another bridge actually there, which is actually the bridge between the UK and China. One of the big kind of like talking points, or at least one of the talking points during the the Brexit referendum, was hey, why if if by leaving the EU we can trade more with like other up and coming nations like China? Now there's nothing stopping us doing that to begin with, um, but. But you know that was a, a kind of like a talking point, and there's there has been under a couple of different government Tory governments now, starting with David Cameron, this kind of push to try and build bridges between the UK and China, um, and it's possible that this could be be seen as part of that as well. Wasn't pig semen mentioned as part of that? Yes, I swear yeah, there yeah. was something about that. I can't remember in what context. I think that was what we were importing, exporting to China. Yeah, it was something daft like that, wasn't it? Effectively, we we still want to try and keep the Chinese government, uh, try and keep this, uh, the Chinese government, um, you know, sweet. Um, and this is a nice way to do that, which actually gives us some benefits. And if we can mitigate the risks, why not? Mm. That that I believe is probably what the what the government's thought process is. And I think also in terms of if just think about the politics of this yeah. as well, for Johnson, it's quite useful for him to show he's not Trump's poodle. Yeah. Again, during the election campaign and afterwards, it's this idea that we're going to be dependent on America for a yeah. trade deal, chlorinated chicken, all this kind of stuff. And it's quite a useful win or a, a useful way of differentiating himself. Yeah. And Mike Pompeo's Secretary of State was over last week, had a press conference with Dominic Raab and I mean, didn't it, it was not as explosive as maybe you would have been led to believe by the briefing beforehand. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, kind of a difference between what um, uh, you know international allies are willing to kind of like put forward publicly and the conversations that go on privately behind closed doors. But uh, not with Donald Trump, there isn't. <laughs> no, but Pompeo is not as Pompeo knows what he's doing, even if we don't necessarily agree wow. with him on a lot of it. That's a bold claim. He knows what more than what he, he, he's been involved with this sort of stuff for years. Like he's he's not dumb enough to try and make a kind of like have a blazing argument in front of a podium. I suppose Donald Trump is otherwise occupied, one might say, yes. at the moment as well. But I think it does show. I mean, this HS two shows the problems that Boris Johnson might have, even with an 80-seat majority, almost the fact that you've got that 80-seat majority, you can see possibly a, a, a group of rebellious Tories rebelling. I mean, we've already got the ERG, but you yeah. can see that group forming again. Obviously, lots of cohesion over getting that Brexit bill through, yep. at least the initial leaving the EU stage. But if you see... It'd be interesting to see who rebels on Huawei and who rebels on... HS2 say and is that the nucleus of an awkward squad that forms over the next four or five years absolutely and because the thing is Boris Johnson as you said is quite likes his infrastructure projects
elephant in the room first then, shall we, Steve? In that clip, we suggest the UK government didn't have much choice but to go for Huawei. Why were we wrong? This is one of those things where, yes, technically we were, we were wrong, but also technically we weren't. Because when you actually look at what the statements that were made, 14th of July, BBC News, Huawei 5G kit must be removed from the UK by 2027. So, yes, they have been banned from putting in more infrastructure. Yes, they are. It is going to have to be removed moving forward. But actually, our our kind of assessment was that actually uh, in the short term, there weren't very many options um, for the government. And again, I think that is being, being, being confirmed by the fact that they've hit, basically given everybody seven years to get it um, sorted. Now, if there is a genuine kind of like national security concern around this sort of stuff, why are you make, giving that amount of time? Why aren't you investing cash, money, working with mobile providers to replace that Huawei, Huawei technology with, I don't know, Samsung or, or whoever else is, is, is able to provide it? So, yes, we were, we were wrong about kind of Huawei kind of continuing to operate. But I think our actual uh, initial assessment that there was no alternative is kind of accurate to a degree in that things that already uh, they, they had to in order to get 5G, ro 5G rolling out, they had to use Huawei to begin with. Um, and then with in order to leave that up and functional, they've given a very long time frame for replacements to be put in place, despite the fact that this, this is supposed to be about national security concerns. It's like that, is it, Steve? I want this to be a way of making some cheap jokes that have bad predictions, and you're going to insist on looking at what was said and bringing in facts, aren't you? I, I am one of those people that does believe that facts should be the basis of all debates and arguments. Can't believe you betray me like this after all these years. <laughs> There's a few other things, just to completely contradict myself again, that maybe another thing we got reasonably accurate, I think, are the interesting dynamics in the Tory party. There's definitely been a shift in tone, I would say. Certainly, I think the rhetoric's gone from being quite open to being quite hostile. I suppose one of them is there's been a few different negative stories about China over the last few months. We've seen some quite absolutely shocking footage of how China is treating its Uyghur population in what are essentially camps, essentially concentration yeah. camps, aren't they? Um, yeah, they are. And they've made massive international news justifiably. And so I think there's a, and that as well as the uh, escalation of eroding democracy in Hong Kong, I suppose, and heavy-handed Chinese government action there, um, means that the British government has responded to that and there's a sort of a bit of a cooling of relations isn't there between Hong Kong uh, between between China and London yeah absolutely there, there, there definitely uh, is I mean you've also got to throw in the fact that you've got uh, apps like TikTok um, which are uh, uh, apparently kind of like mining data off of people's phones and because TikTok is a Chinese owned app um, that data potentially being made available to the Chinese government. So there's a, a whole string of, for lack of a better term, bad PR stories for China uh, over the past few months or so. So much of what the government's kind of done is because its hand has been forced. Like, they can't uh, ignore... Um, well, actually, broadly speaking, the, most of the world is doing a pretty good job of actually ignoring the situation of, uh, involving China and the Uyghurs, but um, that's a separate... <laughs> separate uh, thing yeah um but generally speaking 
um, when it, with Hong Kong in particular, due to the British history with Hong Kong and the fact that it was a British colony and the deal that was made with China to kind of hand that back over with Britain. There's an awful lot there to kind of like unpack from a British perspective as these kind of like new laws and these new, um, this new kind of like system of governance is brought in in Hong Kong, which just, if you don't do something about it, then you end up basically just giving China the green light to continue down this route, um, which in turn means if they don't stop it, you need to take action in some form to basically say, hey, look, if you don't stop this, this is what's going to happen. There need to be consequences for your decisions, and these are the consequences. And I feel like the partly the decision to kind of like get, get Huawei kit removed from the 5G network is probably a part of that. And again, that would kind of explain why you have that 2027 deadline as well, because it basically goes, hey, China, you've still got plenty of time to turn this around. Um, if you if if you just actually you know play ball, um, they won't because it's China. There's a definite carrot and stick situation being utilised by the British government when it comes to China, trying to utilise the stick, and they've not, and they're trying to use kind of like potential involvement in future projects, um, hence that longer deadline um, as a carrot as well. Mm, carrots and sticks they seem like poor substitutes for 5G wires. I'm not quite sure that they work in quite the same way. Moving on, because I can I can feel Steve's look of disdain across the airwaves. Uh, the thing about the 2027 20, deadline that strikes me is that it is very conveniently after the next general election as well. And I think that's maybe interesting for a couple of reasons. I think two reasons for the shift we haven't quite talked about. One of them is actually Labour's position on Huawei and China and 5G. And I feel like Lisa Nandy in particular, as Chair of Foreign Secretary, has done a couple of interviews, I think, making it clear that China shouldn't be part of our 5G infrastructure. And I wonder if, politically, from Labour's point of view, I wonder if, I, I, partly I think it's the, the moral reason, uh, but I think there's also maybe an element of wanting to seem... Uh, in contrast, say, to decisions by previous leaderships on stuff like the Skripal poisonings, where it was seen as maybe it was a bit too um, on the side of the Russian government, that there's a very definite need to want to, to be seen for standing up for Britain on this, to put it very in very, very simplistic terms. And I think the second thing is those Tory backbenchers as well. So we talk about, uh, on, that, on that clip, the formation of a possible awkward squad. And that sort of started happening, doesn't it? Because I think since that episode came out, uh, there's the China Research Group, which has been set up by, I think, Tom Tukenhat, who we referenced in the yep. episode. It does feel like there's definite backbench pressure on that issue. And there's also been some interesting stuff on the new intake from December 2019. We have a Patreon article, episode on three school meals, in which we talk about that in a bit more depth. But there's interesting articles that have come out since that we recorded that episode that have talked about how because most of that 2019 that 2019 Tory intake have essentially been working remotely there's been a sort of fostered culture of in culture of independence among those backbenchers because they haven't really been able to be um coddled in a sort of Westminster atmosphere it's a very clunky way of putting it but that it, it seems like it means that those that particular intake of MPs does seem to be quite independent and and free minded. 
Yeah, I think I think the, uh, the, the 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 polite way to put it is that uh, the uh, latest intake of Tory MPs uh, haven't had the team building exercises that uh, that previous uh, uh, of, of generations of Tory MPs have had because of the uh, because of the pandemic. What's your favourite team building exercise to do? Let's not go into that. I've been on far too many dodgy team building exercise things. Tricky. Okay. Yeah. The, yes and ho. Just to kind of dart back towards the actual point of discussion, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. <laughs> you're absolutely correct with your assessment that there is this streak of independence in the latest batch of, 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 of Tory MPs. When you throw in the fact that you have the likes of Tom Tugendhat, who are quite independent in their own right, but also very security-minded, got that. But then you also have like the Atlanticists, which I believe we kind of uh, alluded to in the clip as well. Um, mm. These are basically people who just really value Britain's special relationship with America. Uh, and it has been quite clear that there has been a bit of a division between the UK and uh, and America um, when it comes to handling Huawei, handling China on a number of different issues, to the extent where I believe actually various senior members of Trump's cabinet have kind of made some statements about, well, you know, if they don't, if they're not actually taking these issues with China seriously, we don't know if we can get them the trade deal, that kind of stuff being being stated, which in turn is obviously going to make people antsy for on the Tory benches for numerous reasons. Definitely being a push, and it would not shock me to discover. Um, that there's been a kind of like a lobbying effort behind the scenes uh, amongst a number of the uh, Tory backbenchers to try and get a more sterner line taken on China, which has been interesting uh, in and of itself because like, I, I swear kind of like a trade deal with China was one of the things that's been talked up by Brexiteers in the past. This kind of stern positioning means that's definitely not going to happen. You can't talk about giving British citizenship to Hong Kong citizens without basically pissing off China because they obviously don't want that to happen um, because it just would demonstrate that an awful lot of people in Hong Kong, even though we know this is true, don't want to be Chinese in the same way as as they might want to be British. And uh, as a result, you have this balancing act that I feel like the government was trying to to take before, um, where now they've just decided for whatever reason, to come down on the side of being sterner on China, which I, I think is the correct thing um, to do. So I will kind of give them props for getting there eventually, um, even though it probably took them a bit longer than it might otherwise have needed to, um, especially given what we've discovered since about the Uyghurs, as we've kind of mentioned. Yeah, there's, well, there's going to be so many things, I think, that future historians will find fascinating about this period. But one thing I wonder in particular, I'd be interested to see um, how it's seen given a a wider perspective, is foreign policy of the UK government over the past, certainly at least since uh, 2010, but maybe even before that, given how how the UK government has handled Russia and China. We talked in, when we talked about our reflection on the Russia report a couple of weeks ago, probably like three or four weeks ago now, the problems of the various UK governments have had in trying to, I suppose, accommodate Russia and accommodate Russian businessmen and how that doesn't really seem to have, have worked. And I think it'll be interesting to see you know, David Cameron, George Osborne, making big strides to try and 
create an economic partnership with China. I, I mean, we talk about that in the in the episode. I don't think it's in the clip, but we talk about, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to export to China is pig semen. Given the involvement of Russia in UK politics, given the increasing assertiveness on China on the world stage, whether we did take our off the ball of it. And then again, one of the things about Brexit, I suppose, is that leaving that big European trade block means you need to be part of other big that trade at the moment is through big regional trade blocks if you want to leave that european trade block then are you going to go with the american with the russian with the chinese block and so one of the other things i think that seems to have happened is as you say it's that atlanticism we're sort of having to think about the views of the trump administration on huawei and they are very anti-huawei anti-tiktok and then what that that knock-on relationship, that knock-on effect of what that is with what that means to our relationship with China, I think is also very significant as well. One final thing we haven't talked about from that clip is we've sort of talked about it in a couple of episodes since, I think, haven't we? So you talk about this idea that Dominic Cummings is interested in trying to set up DARPA or a, a sort of big R&D research, what have you. Do you think that coronavirus and the pandemic has put pay to that? We, we've, it, it seems like a lot of the other crusading attitudes of this government in terms of attacks on civil service and what have you are, are continuing. But do you think there'll be a big push by the government to try and um, utilise that new technology and invest in big projects? Almost certainly not, simply because they're going to be terrified about what the uh, kind of like economic consequences are uh, moving forward. Um, you know, the you know the economy has taken a nosedive as a result of the pandemic, and whilst you know really we should be viewing this almost as like it's like wartime debt, um, you know, and just kind of to a degree kind of just bank it off as something to deal with later, um, which is exactly what we do with wartime debt, and it works fine. Um, that's how every country basically deals with it you know you can we could kind of take that approach and then be just kind of focus on long-term issues i don't think that is what the government's doing they have been been very reactive when it comes to the pandemic you know setting something up like darpa takes time focus um and brexit's still eating a lot of a lot of kind of like capacity of the government um and the reality is the pandemic's kind of usurped all of that as well so there's definitely no spare capacity to actually create this at the moment so maybe in future they might come back to that but i doubt it just because the amount of money that would need to be invested in it is enough to make the less economically literate members of the tory benches nervous in terms of what it would do to debt and all of those sorts of things speaking of eating up capacity what we're going to talk about next week is the sugar tax in the meantime if you would like to listen to past episodes you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to support us so that we can continue making these in the future um, you can back us on patreon can't you steve you can indeed you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne throw us a few quid every month you'll gain access to a unique episode unique blog content um online discussions with some of our talking heads and our fair selves as well 
Uh, and uh, yeah, everything that you uh, give to us goes to making sure that this podcast continues to run on a monthly basis. A weekly basis, Steve, surely. Our website's nothingofchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash nothingofchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Cooking Good Times. Um, and our Twitter handle's at nochampagnepod. My Twitter handle is at paperbackwriter. Mine's at acoustic radical. Happy to talk to you.